Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast. My name is Tzvi Hirschfield, and I have the distinct privilege and pleasure of discussing the profound analysis and deep insights into the Parsha from my wonderful colleagues at the Pardes Institute. So glad you could join us. Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast. We're up to Parshat Toldot. I want to point out to all of our listeners that although you are listening to this somewhere in November, we, in fact, here in Israel are recording this on the 25th of October. And unfortunately, it is a very difficult tense, painful time here in Israel. So some of that may come through in my discussion today or our discussion today. Uh, So just understand, hopefully, by the time you are listening to this, everything is much better, but uh, who can tell? I would like to introduce my uh, my guest, my friend and colleague, Rabbi Chaim Shalom, who happens to be, among other things, the Director of Israel Studies at Pardes. Welcome, Chaim. Yes. Hi. Wonderful to be here. Uh, fantastic to be here and on the podcast. This is my first time. Please be gentle with me. Okay, I will do my best. And you may have detected an accent that's real. Chaim actually did not grow up in Georgia and just adopt a British accent to sound sophisticated, but he actually comes from England. I was actually going to try and say that that's exactly what I did. I actually come from Poughkeepsie, but I'm just putting on a British accent so the people there will think I'm smarter than I am. No one could be that devoted. Okay, so uh, let's jump into our Parsha. Our Parsha, a Parsha Toldot, is really noteworthy primarily because it's the Yitzchak story, right? And it comes after a few Parshio dealing with Avram. And it's going to transition after this parsha into many parshiot focusing on Yaakov and his family. And here we have the middle figure. Some would call him a transitional figure. Others would say central to understanding the story, both before and after. But here we come to Yitzchak. And uh, you also have noticed that uh, this parsha stands out in the way of its focus. Right, that's right. Yitzhak is our hero for this Parsha only. Coming to a city near you for just one Parsha, this is Yitzhak's Parsha. And even then, it's obvious that he's kind of a link. It says Ve'ele Toldot Yitzhak, but actually it starts Avraham Holidet Yitzhak. So Yitzhak's lineage is as the son of Avraham. So in that sense, Yitzhak is a connector between two separate stories. And you didn't mention it's free, but I'm on the more heretical end of the Pardes uh, faculty. So I'm allowed to say things like, you know, biblical critics believe that potentially, actually, there really were two very separate narratives. Avraham is one narrative of the people of Judea or Judah. And Yaakov is another patriarchal narrative of the people of Israel. And really, these two narratives weren't ever together. And they were forced to be a family, Avraham and Yaakov. And Yitzhak comes in between to make that connection. So what we see in this parasha is a story of Yitzhak, but it may actually really just be a connector. But within it anyway, Yitzhak has a very interesting story. So whether I'm heretical or not, and I'm not going to reveal that today, that people have to listen to future podcasts to discuss discover my theological beliefs. Either way, whether it's a human editor or whether it's the Lord God, we still have to wrestle with a narrative that has Yitzchak in the middle of these two critical figures. Avram as the beginning, the one who receives the initial command of Lech Lecha, the one who signs the first contract with God. He makes the Brit, the covenant with God. And Yaakov, who we're going to see, has to wrestle mightily with trying to figure out how to uh, bring this whole thing to fruition and actually is going to witness the Jewish people going down to Egypt. So 
Yitzchak is both a receiver of this great moment with Avram in the covenant, and he is going to hand it off to what comes next. Indeed, as we do with the entirety of Jewish history, we all receive and we give. But Yitzhak really is also quite special. He stands out from Avraham and Yaakov in particular ways. Avraham's journey is a journey of travel. He really is the one who lech lecha, he goes from one place to another. He comes to Eretz Yisrael. Yaakov, as we know, ends up going down to Egypt. Yitzchak in the middle is the one who stays. He's born in Israel. He's Yelida Aretz. He's a, a native of the country. He's a Tzaba, and he stays here his whole life. He never leaves Israel. Equally, also, Yitzchak has his name given to him by God's self and never changes his name, unlike Avram, who becomes Avraham, Yaakov, who becomes Yisrael, Yitzchak remains with his one name. And also, even though, like in every generation, Yitzchak and Rivka do experience infertility, Yitzchak remains only with his one wife, Rebecca. And that might be connected to the wonderful love story of Rebecca and Yitzchak, where it says he loved her, which we don't have about other couples. But in these three ways, Yitzchak is very unique. Well, Yaakov does love Rachel. Yaakov does love Rachel, but not Leah, and that's the point. Like Yitzhak has one wife who he is devoted to. So there are these common themes of infertility. We're going to see in a minute this common theme of the chosen child. Common theme with Avram, there is famine in the land. He digs the wells that his father dug, pointing out there's some important differences between Yitzhak and Avram and Yitzhak and Yaakov that sort of he's part of the chain, but he's also got his own story that's playing out. Right. And so this parasha is special exactly because of that. What we see generally in the book of Breshi is there is a lot of things repeating itself. And that's what we're going to concentrate on in our discussion, the ways in which history seems to repeat itself. And yet Yitzhak is a little bit different. Maybe Yitzhak had the opportunity for things not to repeat themselves, and we'll look at that too. Essentially, so what we see at the very beginning of our parasha is the story of the two children in the womb, and these two children who will become two nations. And then as the parasha goes on, we see the evolving stories of Esav and Yaakov. And towards the end, we have what's understood as the stealing of the birthright. And this story revolves around the favoritism, which is shown. You know, what we have right at the beginning is that Yitzhak loves Esav and Rivka loves Yaakov. And I guess for the reader, we're surprised because with Yishmael and Yitzchak, we had two different wives. We had the preferred wife. And therefore, we're less surprised that when there is tension, Yitzchak is the one who is designated, designated by God, really, to be the continuation of this covenant. However, in the case of Yaakov and uh, Esav, they're both from the same mother. So maybe when the Parsha begins, we're expecting, oh, they're twins. But of course, the prophecy that Rivka is given in the beginning already bursts that bubble, right? She is told there are two nations in your belly, right? This is not this launching of the Jewish people and tribes, everything we're going to get later on. But in fact, this conflict between nations is already present in the very twins that you are carrying. Right. And here's the interesting thing. It's Rivka who is told this by God. And that, by the way, we've just 
gone through Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the readings of Rosh Hashanah, the Pakad et Rivka, the visiting of Rebecca, this remembering of Rebecca, is central to those readings that we read on Rosh Hashanah because the point is God remembers Rebecca. Rivka, Rebecca, same thing. Rivka is the one who knows that these will be two nations. And maybe one of the things we have to remember is maybe Yitzchak didn't realize he had to make a choice. Seems he doesn't, right? She doesn't ever seem to tell him anything of this prophecy, which of course is itself very surprising, right? We know the commentators say, well, she thought he was a greater prophet than her. She didn't want to insult him. She assumed he knew. But you're right. It seems pretty clear that he doesn't know. And you're right. He has two options ahead of him. He could either not choose at all or choose Yaakov. And instead, he goes with option three, where he chooses Esav, which itself then raises the whole question, did the choosing have to happen? Was Yitzchak really a free agent? He could have actually pushed against that prophecy, or are we looking at some type of inevitable God-driven drama where, no, one must be chosen, one must be pushed out? Right, and th- and that's the thing. So we have two separate concepts that are playing around here. One is Bechira, the choice, but the other is Bracha, and Yitzchak wants to give a Bracha to Esav, but it's not clear he wasn't also planning to give another Bracha to Yaakov. So Yitzchak might have been planning to bless both his children, and they both go on. And here's the thing. He's not aware that he's necessarily making this choice. And then you have to look at the, the through the generations. When he's not aware, is he not aware because he doesn't actually plan to make a choice? Or is this now in his subconscious? And that's the other piece. Yitzchak is, as we've already seen, someone who himself has been chosen. And he was chosen and Yishmael was sent away. And so in this generation, he's essentially just doing what he sees as natural, potentially. When he chooses to choose Esav, it's possible that he thinks that's normal. He thinks it's normal for parents to play favorites, to cast out one son and choose another. The damage has been done to him by his experience. And not only that, like the famous Jewish joke goes, yeah, we're the chosen people, but could we just not be chosen for a while? Because what did his choice get? He went on a camping trip with his dad, who then tried to kill him. So it wasn't great being the chosen one, particularly. Maybe he didn't want to be chosen. Well, we'll talk about the significance of being chosen, like continuing on. But I just want to sort of point out, you're raising a very interesting reading of the text that suggests because Yitzchak does not have access, it seems, to this prophecy, there are really two possibilities here that you raise. One is, no, he's going to bless Esau, which some people suggest. Esau gets the material blessing, the fat of the land, and that he's going to be the general king because he's the guy who knows to go outside and fight. And Yaakov, the dweller of tents, he's going to be the Aaron, right? He's going to be the priest, the rabbi, because later on he gets Birkat Avraham, the blessing of Abraham. So Yitzchak might think, I'm forming the Jewish people now. I've got my military leader, I've got my spiritual leader, right? My Navi and my Melech, my prophet and my king, and everything's going to go forward. And then only afterwards, we don't really know exactly when, he seems to understand that that's not the plan. Or as you're saying, he believes, no, there's always going to be a choice. The same way in my generation, someone had to be brought in and someone has to be kicked out. So too now I have to repeat and follow in my father Avram's footsteps and choose one and ignore the other. In any case, both of those possibilities get rejected, if you will, because Yaakov ends up walking away as the one who is selected. And you're suggesting right now, if I understand, that this process of selection 
when read in real time, as opposed to almost the sense of, oh, it had to happen that way. But if you want to read it in real time, you're suggesting there's something very tragic and difficult happening here. Right. Everything about Yitzhak you can read in two ways. You can read him either as a simple connector and his story isn't important, or as the really special one who stands out from this crowd of patriarchs. And equally, you can read him as he's just doing what he's kind of been programmed to do, or maybe we're reading him wrong and actually he never meant to choose. He was actually trying to do something else, give them both a blessing, and stop the idea of choice. And he wanted to, as it were, exactly set up this dual understanding, the Navi and the Melech or the Kohen and the political leader. And he was trying to have a united people and he didn't want to choose and everyone would receive a blessing. At the end of the story, Asav comes back and says, well, is there not another, you know, is there only one blessing? This has been taken on today into faith circles as like a slogan of we genuinely believe there is more than one blessing. All the children of Abraham, which obviously in these days is understood to mean the three monotheistic groups, faith groups, Islam, Christianity and Judaism, we all have the ability to be blessed. Now, so I'm going to go for, I think what the majority reading is, is no, Yitzhak did make a choice. He did choose Esav. But the reason why he chose Esav is because he himself was chosen. And his making that choice then also passes on a generation. Because when we see it also in Yaakov, Yaakov, for slightly different reasons, also chooses favorites. He has two favorites, essentially, both Yosef and Binyamin, but he chooses favorites. And this choosing of favorites becomes, to some extent, a curse. The choosing of the next generation, this chosenness, becomes a curse. Well, let, let's go back and talk about that a minute, because what you're suggesting, which it, it, it's interesting and also difficult in the sense that the choosing that happens doesn't seem to be only Yitzchak's choice, but the prophecy that, if we say the prophecy is authentic that Rivka receives, there's an element here that God made a choice as well. But let's speak about it on two levels. First, on the level of family dynamic and what you're suggesting about the consequences of choosing and how painful that is. And then, of course, we'll move into sort of the broader theological national level, this idea of choosing a nation and what are the implications of that. Right. So, I mean, yeah, I think on the family dynamic, you're exactly right. If we were to look backwards through Breshit, okay, and we were to say Yosef was chosen by Yaakov, Yaakov was chosen by Rivka in the end, essentially, but received the blessing from birthright from Tzach. Yitzhak was chosen by Abraham. So are we going to blame Terach? No, we're not going to blame Terach. Who are we going to blame, essentially? We're going to blame God, okay? God started all this, and it led to daddy issues in every generation. But yes, each generation has this problem that they've basically inherited some kind of trauma from either being chosen or being rejected and that's on the family side and then when we see that develop eventually we see even the point towards the end and sorry for spoilers but in the end of Sefer Breshit we see that Yosef tries to stop Yaakov from carrying on this idea Yaakov wants to bless the younger above the elder like he was um, and like Yosef was. And Yosef makes sure or tries to make sure that they are blessed in the correct way. But what we really see in the end 
is that when we bless our children on Friday night, we bless them as both Ephraim and Menashe, and we bring them together. And that's the point. We are making a tikkun every single Friday night that we no longer have to choose between our children. That our children will be blessed together, all of them, okay, equally. This idea of favoritism has to be left behind. The idea of chosenness has to be left behind. Let's pursue that because it's obviously the implications are very loaded and I want to explore that with you. So then, of course, the reader of the Chumash still has to ask, then why does God want this? God has a, it's not that the patriarchs are, you know, bumbling into these decisions. God is directing them with Yishmael and Yitzchak. He tells Avram, you got to remove Yishmael. He tells Rivka that there are two nations, as surprising as that might be. So why is God putting this idea of choosing into motion, in your opinion? If choosing between sons, not only is a terrible family dynamic, but you're suggesting, we'll get to that in a minute, has future ramifications that are also problematic, that elevating one over the other does not have good consequences. This is obviously a, a big theological question. And if you go from a Rambamian perspective, a Maimonidean perspective, then this is really, really hard. But I learned a wonderful Torah in my days as a student at Pardes, that essentially the Torah is the diary of God's mistakes. And that actually, God maybe isn't a being which can do no wrong. That maybe actually what we see in the Torah is that the way that the world ends up being more and more perfect. And for that to be, there have to be some things that aren't perfect at the beginning. Maybe actually choice is wrong. You know, we see at the very beginning of the Torah that Cain and Hevel are fighting to be the one who is loved and that maybe says something about humankind about humanity that we all desperately want to be loved and we all desperately want to be the most loved but actually that's a dangerous impulse and we see that play out in our ancestors and so maybe actually what we're meant to learn from this is the role of the parent the role of each generation is to make sure the next generation feels secure and loved and doesn't need to compete. So why did God set in motion the idea of chosenness? I can't say, obviously. Okay, I don't know why this is the history we choose to remember about ourselves. But maybe we're meant to learn from it. Maybe we're meant to learn from the difficult stories that we read about how we're meant to act today. So let, let's pursue that for a minute. Is there room, I guess I'm going to ask you if you can differentiate between particularism and chosenness, that is there still room for families or nations or, you know, the, the message of Migdal Bavel, the Tower of Babel, that we're not all meant to be the same, that, that difference is valued and, and being part of these subgroups of humanity has value. Is there room in your thinking for particularism without chosenness? Absolutely. I'm not arguing against particularism. I'm not even sure I'm necessarily arguing against chosen. Well, I think when we listen to the tape later on, <laughs> you will hear yourself very clearly arguing against chosenness, I'm uh, Chaim. I'm arguing that it's dangerous. I think chosenness is a dangerous idea. We'll get to that. But particularism, I 100% believe in particularism. You know, I was born in Manchester, England, the darkest hole of Jewish exile, but the eternal capital of soccer. I want to apologize to any listeners from Manchester who might be listening in. That was Chaim's opinion only, not the Pardes Institute. Please continue. And I could very easily have just chosen to be your average British person. We were a very integrated family. 
My father was Lord Mayor of Manchester. We could have been very, very British and very, very English. And I chose to come here to Israel and be the most Jewish version of myself, where my siblings, are, you know, they live wonderful lives, but they don't live very Jewishly connected lives. I believe in particularism. I think that national culture is good. I embrace Jewish national culture, and I think that it can give my kids a wonderful grounding in the world, which they will then be able to use to be wonderful people in the world. I believe in particularism. I think, you know, we see this in the Kriyat Shema, Shema Yisrael. It is a call to the particular. Our central credo, Shema Yisrael, involves the particular and the universal but we start with the particular we call shema yisrael we're calling to our sisters and brothers and siblings and saying here us guys together shema yisrael but the purpose the end is a chad okay shema yisrael hashem elokeinu hashem echad okay the end point is a chad we are meant to be one with the entire world we start with particularism but we're meant to get to universalism so i 100 percent see a value to particularism i think jewishness is hugely important i think each national culture has a huge amount to give and i'm also very worried about chosenness so we're going to come back to your worries in a moment so i guess if i was going to adopt your reading which I'm not saying I am, uh, listeners. I'm staying on the fence on this one. The need for choosing between brothers is to convey this message that although a particular national identity requires choosing, right? You ha you have to have some kind of in-group. There's always going to be an out-group if you have some kind of in-group, right? The fact that you have a family, you're married with children, the fact that you show extra care to your partner and your own children over others is a necessary element of what it means to have a healthy family, right? That you you do prioritize the in-group versus the out-group. On the other hand, we have to remember the out-group are still our brothers, and that it might be the pain and dysfunction that comes about through choosing is paradoxically sending that message. You do have to build an in-group, but understand in-groups cause tension and pain to others who are not part of that group. And so what you're suggesting is somehow we have to figure out how we have an in-group without causing that pain to the outside group. Right. And also we need to recognize the complexity of in-groups and out-groups, and that these things are fluid, and that there are some people on the borders of our in-group who also connect to an out-group, or who may feel that they're part of both groups, because what this all starts with is one family. You know, one person who has two sons, admittedly they're of different uh, mothers in the first generation, Avraham, but he has two sons. And our text talks about, you know, your son, your only son who you love. And it's talking about Yitzhak and we have the famous Midrash of, well, actually I have two sons and I love them both. And, you know, and so, you know, an in-group and an out-group is created from brothers. And that's the point. The message is, yes. We have in-groups. We have out-groups. The world is as it is. We can't have one community of 7 billion people. But we must recognize when we go all the way back, we really are one. You know, that's the story of the Torah that we're meant to learn, that we all come from one place. We're all made, but tell him Elohim, we're all come from Adam. And yes, it's important that we have our own group, but the out-group is not actually as far removed as we think from ourselves. So when you get to those passages in the Tanakh or in our liturgy that talk about Jewish chosenness, 
How do you react to that? Do you do you not say it? Do you reinterpret it for yourself? What do you do with that concept that has been accompanying the Jewish people for centuries and centuries? Right. So we're talking about chosenness. We're talking about Bechira. I am in my other hat. I'm currently wearing a hat. Um, but my other hat, I'm the rabbi of a shul in Jerusalem, which was founded by students of Rabbi Mordechai Kaplan. Rabbi Mordechai Kaplan dealt a lot with the issue of chosenness. And he realized that it was a dangerous thing. And in that way, he actually changed the blessings that we say over the Torah before we read it. So in my shul in Yerushalayim here, we give people the choice of whether you say the traditional blessing before the Torah is read, Asher b'chabanu mikol ha'amim, or you can choose a different blessing, Asher kirvanu la'avodato. One who draws us near to his service, which would apply to everyone. Presumably that's the message. Well, it removes the idea that we have it's been not specifically national. chosen. The issue isn't about nationality or not nationality. The issue is, what does chosenness mean? And here, I think it's important to understand that Jewishness is not a detached ideal. It's not a faith disconnected from a particular people's history. We are a people. We live in history. I don't have a problem with chosenness as it worked for many, many years. Chosenness as an idea that was developed from the Tanakh and through rabbinics served us very, very well in our exile. When we were living in Eastern Europe or in North Africa or the Middle East or even, you know, dark, dark holes such as Manchester, and we felt like we were in terrible pain and suffering and we were on the outsides and no one loved us the idea of chosenness was great it helped us say yes god loves us god really does want us to succeed even if the world around us is really really hard so chosenness was fine when we were in exile and maybe this actually answers the original point why did chosenness come into being because at certain times in history chosenness can be really great it can help us survive the exile. It can help us think that the end will come and we will return home and everything will be great. So in certain times, we need that comfort to feel like we are chosen. But today, post-1948, post-5708, when Israel has come back and we are in our home again, and we have the third Jewish commonwealth, chosenness has a very different image then. And if we keep on telling ourselves that we are chosen now that we have power, that is dangerous because we become the the people who think we've been chosen. So what we do must be right. And that really does worry. Me. Right. I hear that, although I can't help but push back a little bit. Uh, the things you mentioned about all the terrible things we experienced in exile, the world uh, not caring for us, us being in a dangerous position, all the pain and suffering. I can't help but resonate with those things today in the situation that we're in. So I'm not so sure that us having a state means that we still don't need some of the, the beliefs that go along with the things that you mentioned about chosenness and feeling that God still cares about us and we have a unique mission in the world. But I do understand what you are saying about that chosenness can be dangerous if it serves to 
justify uh, anything that we do and anything that we want and we're the most important, even though I think that our, our our tradition doesn't endorse that. I don't think that that's the message that the sages or the prophets or anybody else offered to us, that because you're chosen, you could do whatever you want, it's all okay. I think the opposite, we're chosen to receive this law that in all sorts of ways binds us and ties us and limits us and reminds us that uh, we're here to do a mission, not to serve ourselves. And I think that actually is 100% true. I agree with your reading of chosenness. I agree that it was never meant to anywhere come close to leading to any side of sense that Jews might be superior to other people who weren't chosen. I 100% agree with that. But the very nature of it is that it can do that. And that actually is what we see in Israel today. And, and the things that scare me about certain elements of Israeli society are, I think they have misused the idea of chosenness. And it is a misuse. I agree. It's not that the rabbis ever imagined that we would think that chosenness means that somehow Jews are superior. But the very understanding that God chooses us could possibly lead, and it has led in certain instances, there are people who've taken it upon themselves to say, because God has chosen us, and because God has given us this land, and the chosenness is inherently linked to the land and the zerah of Avraham, the chosenness is inherently linked to this. Some people have taken it and said, because of this, this land is ours and we cannot possibly have any compromise with anyone else who thinks otherwise. And it does give us the right to do certain things, which maybe they would not have thought of that if they didn't believe that God believed that they should do it. Okay, so if I understand you correctly, going back to our text for a moment before we close, that the choosing of one from the other creates a certain amount of dysfunction and pain by its very nature. Even though you're saying that that idea of feeling chosen and selected could also have a very powerful impact in investing someone with tremendous responsibility and mission and purpose, but the misuse and the dysfunction and the pain that it's caused is also present as well. So in terms of the ultimate tikkun, as you look to the future with faith, which is not easy to do these days for a lot of us, but you're a rabbi, you said so, so I'm assuming you can do it, is the ultimate tikkun that we maintain our particularism without the negative side? Or do you feel like the ultimate tikkun is that all these sense of divisions and choices disappear? I think within the Jewish tradition, we see both of these ideas. You know, we see a vision of the future where all humanity, is as one unit brought together. And we see an idea that we'll all stop speaking different languages and come together and bow down to the one God, Belashon Achad, in one tongue. So we do see the idea of some kind of universal gathering. I am less connected to the idea of some kind of uniformity as all being one than I am to the idea that what we have to struggle with in the day to day. Okay, what's the thing that we have to do today? I am all for us using our particular heritages, our particular cultures, our particular nationalities. I think that it's good to invest in Jewishness and use Jewishness to bring the incredible values that have in our tradition to push us towards trying to make a better world. What's the tikkun that we need to do? Yes, of course. It is to understand that each time we build a bridge between an us and a them, then there is a danger in that, that we will then turn that them into someone who wants to attack us. And that is very, very dangerous. So let me ask you one thing to close, because we can't not talk about what's happening around us. 
this tremendous vision, this really you've articulated tremendous faith in humanity uh, and where humanity can get to. How do you hold on to that vision, given what we have seen and experienced these last few weeks, both here in Israel and abroad? Where do you find strength? Where do you go to to maintain that sense or connection? I think in these incredibly difficult times, we witnessed something that was so horrific um, that it's impossible to contemplate um, for such a small country to lose so many people in one day in such a barbaric manner. How, how do you continue to have faith in the idea that maybe we can all live in peace? And then I would say, because there's no alternative, there is no alternative to eventually believing that we have to, because the alternative is someone has to win and someone has to lose. The alternative to believing that we have to keep working towards finding a way that different families, different brothers can still live together and walk on together is believing that one has to defeat the other. In our parasha, it says the older will serve the younger. I want to say no. Okay, let's work together. La vod to serve and to work. Let's work together as equals because the alternative is each one of us will try and prove that we're the one who should be chosen. And that's what the division is about, really, is we're arguing who is the chosen one. And I believe that if you are interested in being the chosen one rather than interested in being a brother, if we keep on trying to seek the acceptance of our parents rather than just trying to live together with our siblings, then we're going to be in trouble. So for me, how do I hold on to it? I hold on to it by the knowledge that there is no alternative to believing that we have to be here together in peace in the end. Okay. Well, I think you spoke for yourself. I I'm envious of your, I guess, optimism by necessity. I'm really jealous you can have that still animate you. I don't know if I'm there right now. I don't know if I want to be there right now, but I still certainly respect and again, I think the fact that you have that gives you a lot of strength and a lot of hope during a time where those things are pretty hard to come by. So here we have it. We have a parsha that, uh, read in this direction, both launches a unique destiny for a unique people, but uh, Chaim is telling us it also launches a lot of potential problems in the future. And this is a story that does not try to hide the problems that are being generated. And in the same time as it encourages the progress of the story all at the same time. And what you're saying is that the Torah is offering us an awareness that some things here we take with us and some things you're saying require tikkun, require fixing in order to reach the end goal. Have I summarized you accurately? I think you have. I think the Torah is describing life as it is. In life, we do create these divisions. We do create these in-groups and out-groups. We create the people we consider family. We consider our tribe, our people. And I think in the overall story, the Torah does give us a solution, which is to say you can have both. You can have your family and your tribe and your people, and it's good to do that. And it's good to also remember that in the end, we're all serving one goal of unity and God's unity in this world. Okay, everyone, I think we're going to end with that very positive, hopeful message. Chaim, thank you so much for joining and giving us your time and your wisdom. Thank you. And I hope that the time all of you are listening to this, that the hostages have been freed and there is peace in the land of Israel and the people that want to hurt us or harm us are no longer capable of doing so. 
כן יהי רצון, אמן. So on that note, have a Shabbat Shalom, and looking forward to בשורות טובות, positive news or messages in the future. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast, recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha podcast. Shabbat Shalom.